welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Adolfo Babats, founder and CEO of Clip, the leading solution in Mexico for small and medium-sized businesses to accept digital payments. The company currently has more than 400 employees in different offices located in Salt Lake City, California, Utah, Guadalajara, and Mexico City. Before Clip, Adolfo was responsible for customer engagement and new product development for PayPal Latin America. Prior to moving into the engagement team, Adolfo led the team that opened PayPal in Mexico. Right before PayPal, Adolfo studied an MBA at MIT where he specialized in entrepreneurship and economics of information. Previously, Adolfo worked as an advisor to the executive vice president of Grupo Desk, one of the largest industrial conglomerates in Mexico, and shortly thereafter, was part of the founding team of the Carlyle Group Mexico, where he worked as an analyst. And now let's listen to a very interesting conversation with Adolfo Babats. Welcome, Adolfo, and thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Yes, absolutely, Miguel. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here. So I, uh, before joining, uh, before starting Clip, uh, I was working at PayPal. This was, I joined PayPal in 08. I was employee number, I think it was three for LATAM. So it was the very early days for PayPal in Latin America. I did there two main, uh, or I had two main jobs. The first one was to open up Mexico. I was in charge of opening up uh, Me uh, PayPal Mexico. I was also involved in Brazil, but my job was Mexico. And then after that was done, a couple of years, I stayed in a new product development role in the San Francisco office. And after that, I left for, for Clip. Prior to PayPal, I was uh, uh, at MIT doing my MBA. And prior to that, I used to work at the Carlyle Group in Mexico. I was part of the founding team uh, in, of Carlyle in Mexico. And prior to Carlyle, I was working for a big industrial conglomerate. And prior to that, I had many other things, but I won't go that far. But that, that's basically my, my background. Fantastic. And are you from Mexico, I assume? I am from Mexico. I was born and raised in, in Mexico City, yes. Perfect. And so take us through, you know, maybe your time at PayPal and the moment where you started considering that, you know, something like Clip was a necessity and then how did you approach the very beginning of, of the idea? This was in 08, um, mid 08, right before the financial crisis. Now that we're in this other crisis, <laughs> I barely got into PayPal. Literally, the, I think the, the layoffs in the entire industry started around August or September and I joined early August. Um, so I joined uh, PayPal. And back then, the iPhone already existed, just a price background, but there was no app store. So what we did is, or, well, I started, you know, working out in, in, in Mexico. I met uh, the people from the mobile team, uh, the PayPal mobile team, which was back then still had to develop for BlackBerry and other stuff like that. Can you remember or imagine? And we met and we started working on a few products or a few projects together. After uh, that, one of the projects that came out of, of that was uh, something similar to what Clip is today or what Square is today, which is the acceptance of a credit card on an iPhone. And we were doing a, a series of uh, e-commerce seminars in Mexico, in, in Cancun, in the Cancun region. And we took this as a prototype for merchants, and they absolutely love it. Actually, they like it more than they 
e-commerce product. So when we went back to San Jose, where PayPal headquarters are, uh, my job was to sell that internally. I did a actually pretty bad job selling internally, and my boss just said, you know what, just focus on make sure you launch. So I went back to do what I had to do. However, uh, I knew that from that brief interaction with the merchants, I knew this could be very, very big. And about a year later, Square launched in the United States. So we saw, I mean, I saw this, the rise of Square from my desk at PayPal, and I was like, shit, man, this is, <laughs> you know. So eventually, uh, after a few years, uh, I had no product background, nor technology background. So after uh, a couple of years, or three years later, I decided to leave PayPal and start Click. That's the origin of the company. That's super interesting, uh, and I, I like the example of how uh, an idea that you saw as a clear winner could not get started at a large company, so you left and you did it yourself. Uh, how how did you approach- I just want to clarify that it was not done because I didn't sell it well enough. <laughs> so it was my fault. Well, you did sell it to the investors with Clip. Yeah, but it's a lot easier to sell something after the success of somebody else. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be diminishing of the work we have done at Clip, but it's, it's a lot easier to sell later when you already have a history of success someplace else. Interesting. So, yeah. And so how did you approach the technology building and then the developing the product? When I left PayPal, I met my co-founder in PayPal. He, was, he had a technical background. I had more the business background. So one of the things we did, which is, I think now it's, it's very common. Back then it was, was not that common, at least in Latin America and some other regions. Many startup founders outsource their product and engineering to somebody else. And we took the exact opposite approach, which is we did everything in-house. Um, at some point, we even considered manufacturing hardware. Can you imagine that? Thank God we didn't go that route, but, um, but we did everything internally. So we had limited resources. As you imagine, we did raise money. We, at the end of 2012, this was 2012 when I left. At the end of that year, uh, we raised $1.5 million, which right now it sounds like nothing, but back then there was almost no VC market in the region, especially in Mexico. So it was like the biggest round ever raised after a serious seed. And with that, we were able to hire engineers and product managers, especially engineers, to help us build the product. And the way we approached it was to make sure that we, we had enough customer feedback on some of the features and some of the needs they had. We made an early decision in the product, which turned out to be very, very important. One of our competitors, uh, largest competitors back then was iSettle, uh, which is a Swedish company that does exactly the same thing. And they had a much more robust and, and complete set of features. However, those features were developed for Europe for the European market, especially the UK and Sweden, which is where this company is from. And we, as you might imagine, as you know, Mexico is very different from Sweden. So, so we focus on the needs of the, of the local merchants. And these guys had a beautiful catalog and all these bells and whistles, but merchants really didn't want that product. So the very scary resources we had, we focused them on offering a lot of payment 
methods and a lot of payment options to emerge, especially payments in installments, which as you know, in Latin America are very popular. And that proved to be a winning uh, strategy. So I think the, the, the caveat here, or not the caveat, the, the, the lesson here is that we did have a much larger, much better founder competitor with a lot more resources than we did. And we end up, I mean, there's still a competitor, but we're like probably four times their size now. And it has to do with the fact that the product was developed for the local market. The marketing was developed for the local market. And most importantly, also the distribution was developed for the local market. So we did everything for the local market. And they took a product from abroad and tried to sell it into the, to the market. And we end up winning substantially more market share than them. So that's the way we have approached the building of the product is by making sure that we are constantly aware of the needs and the and the jobs that we need to solve for our customers. Sometimes we have not been successful. I mean, we have made some mistakes, of course, but it's that focus of uh, solving the customer needs or the customer problems that has uh, made Clip very successful. And that goes from the product itself to the marketing, to the distribution, customer service, everything that touches the, pretty much everything that touches the company, even the risk models, everything is done with a local mindset. Very interesting. How did you approach the research that was conducted in order to decide which products to include at the very beginning? So I spent the last year doing this at PayPal, so a wonderful place, an amazing place. But especially the last year I was there, I learned from a guy that PayPal brought from Intuit to start developing products on a, in a customer-centric way. PayPal did not develop product that way. It was more kind of a waterfall, old-fashioned approach. So they brought Hisham, he was an Egyptian guy, fantastic guy. And I met him by random in one meeting, and I told him about a product idea that I had, that I designed, which is a remittances flow for sending money from the U.S. To, to Mexico, but it was a very specific flow that had some very special characteristics. And he said, well, why don't we develop this using this methodology? And I can prove that this is a good concept. I said, well, perfect. So for about a year, <laughs> I did everything except the job that I was supposed to do. <laughs> and I just spent time with Hisham, literally. And I spent about a year seeing how people send and receive money of course, in the, in the United States, but also in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. So in, in the case of Mexico, I even saw a couple of families that they haven't seen each other physically in 10 years. But I, I saw and the parents were in Mexico, the son was in, in the States. And so we were able to connect the dots perfectly on this whole send-receive money. So in that year, I learned, I learned how to interview people for product development. And I did the same when we started Clip, I interviewed, and you don't need to interview that many. These are not focus groups, they're one-on-one -on -one interviews. I interviewed about was like 15 to 20 merchants, different sizes, different industries. And even to this date, a lot of the marketing, a lot of the prioritization comes from those early, early interviews. I mean, because the needs, what is called the jobs that people need to get solved, they don't change over time. They, they don't change that much. They, they tend to be fairly constant. So that's what the, the approach we took. So it was an in-depth interviews with a debrief afterwards 
where we lay down all the information we had captured, which is basically hypothesis. We have hypothesis and these hypotheses are confirmed or not via the, these interviews. And based on that is that we ended up creating a lot of the features and the marketing and the distribution, a bunch of the things that Clip has today comes from that. And it's, it's very hard work. Uh, you ended up exhausted after one of those interviews because you're just paying so much attention to the person and, and are asking questions and try to ask questions that are not leading, the famous lead questions. But it was very rewarding and it proved to be one of the probably best investment decisions from a time perspective that I have ever made was to do those interviews. And we still, uh, a lot of the work for new products and features this way at, at Clip. Fascinating. How about culture, culture-wise within the company? So mm-hmm. it sounds like customer centricity is one of your key yep. pillars. How do you ensure that you are recruiting talent and team, future team members that espouse these values? Yeah, so when people invite me, especially in universities and colleges, to give talks, I always start, and we don't have it here, but I always start with a slide. And I tell them a little bit of what I learned in every one of the places that I work, right? So in, in PayPal, it's very obvious. I, I learned how to interview people and create products. And I go like that in all my background. And for Clip, what I always say is Clip is a place where I made I've become an expert in mistakes. I have a PhD in mistakes, a PhD in fuck-ups. Because it's true. I mean, it's, I, I've made so many mistakes. It's, it's a miracle the company is still alive. And I'm still sitting as a CEO. And I think the place where I've made the most amount of mistakes is precisely on the people front. And I remember my boss at PayPal saying, hey, the people are everything. And I said, oh, this guy, come on. you know, it's, it's bullshitting. And until you're in the hot seat, you actually realize that it's actually true. So, and for you, you're in the MBA and, you know, probably there's a good audience uh, of the podcast at the MBA. The most important classes are not finance. The most important classes are not strategy. They're not even marketing or product development or whatever. The most important classes you can take at the MBA are the ones that are where the theme is people and people management. And I know you you probably don't believe me because I I was like that when I was at Sloan, (laughs) but it it is absolutely true. It is the most important, the most important piece. So I, I, like I said, I made a lot of mistakes. I hired a lot of wrong people with wrong culture and the list. I mean, we could spend hours here, but the point is I did realize this. At some point I did realize I was really screwing things up. And I decided to make uh, a lot of adjustments to the company. Okay. It was obvious things were not working. This was 2015. The company was not growing fast enough. We they had a lot of customers. It was clearly not being a success story. So what I ended up doing is bringing in somebody that actually could help me with this. Because the problem with your founder, and the most important thing is culture, is you have so many things to do that is hard. I mean, even though it is the most important thing, it's really hard to focus on this along with making sure the company has cash. So I was very lucky to bring a person to help me with people in the early days of the company. And then afterwards, uh, somebody that actually helped me drive or download all my vision of what I wanted for people and translate it into very specific actions for the company. So we came out with a set of values that we hadn't had for a long time. 
uh, we had a mission and a vision that that has been there since the beginning, but we didn't have a set of values. And most important, more than the values themselves, is the action behind the values. So how do you enforce, how do you implement those values? And he helped me out with laying out how those values are going to be implemented in the company. Let me give you an example. Our bonuses every year are paid for our, obviously on how the business does, how the person does, but also how the person does related to the values of the company. So if you actually are in conjunction with the values of a company, you are evaluated for that. We have let go of many people that are, were not part of the values of, that we consider for the company. And it's not necessarily good or bad, it's just simply they're not the right fit for the company. So I was very lucky to find this person it is the hardest position I've ever had to fill is the head of people for Click. It's the hardest. So finding talent in Latin America is not as easy as in the States or as in Europe. And the hardest one is the people person. So my advice for future founders or current founders or CEOs, first-time CEOs like myself, is that this is the most important part of it, of the business is the people. It's not the product. It's not the product. It's not the distribution. It's not the features. It's not the tech. It's the people. And if you don't pay a disproportionate amount of time, pay attention or spend a disproportionate amount of time in people matters, eventually it's going to come back to you. However, if you do that, eventually it's going to pay back to you. For me, it's now paying back. The effort of the last, I would say, four years in people, four to five years, which I've spent a lot of time and I still spend a lot of time on that, there, I'm getting all that payback now. So yeah, I made many mistakes on the culture front on the people front, I was able to correct them. I'm lucky to be alive to count them because usually when you make people and culture mistakes in a company, not many companies can recover from that. Sounds like entrepreneurs shouldn't wait a few years to establish and write down their values. Write down and the values, it's not only writing them down, it's writing them down in a consensus form that everybody can really understand them. You do have to spend a lot of time doing this. And the most important thing is that you make sure you walk the talk on those values. Because what happens a lot is you see, I don't know if you remember Enron, okay? Sure. But Enron had their values in gold-plated letters all over their building. And I'm sure one of the values was honest or something related to that. And look at what happened, right? I don't think they so followed the, it. Exactly. The most important thing is to walk the talk. And it's all right if people don't agree with those values is better for them to go out to another place it's and it's okay but you have to do that early on it will save a lot of problems because as you think culture beats strategy always always doesn't matter how good your strategy is if you have the right culture if you have the wrong culture sorry you're not gonna succeed if you have a strategy eh, so so but the culture is right you have a much higher chance of, of succeeding. So uh, for founders, they should spend most of their time in people matters. The product is, is your... more fun, by the way, guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get and, and the marketing and all that, but th that's not where you should, the founders should spend their time, at least most of their time. That's fascinating. Got it. Is your team still fully local in Mexico? We have a couple of offices. We have an office in Mexico City, well, three offices, one in Mexico City, one in Guadalajara, and we have another one in Salt Lake City. One of our early investors is deep in the Salt Lake City tech space. So we do have, uh, it's a small office that we have there, but we do have those three offices. Guadalajara is the newest one. Guadalajara has been with us for about a year now, a little bit more. Salt Lake has been with us since, almost since the very beginning. 
Got it. And tell us a little bit about the products that you currently offer. It's very simple. We offer payment acceptance for SMBs, for those of you that don't, don't know about Clip. And it's a super easy process for any SMB to accept every single payment method available in Mexico. Within that, we offer three different hardware devices where they can accept different products. Those hardware devices, one is a dongle that connects to your phone via Bluetooth. The other one is an Android device that includes the card reader. Think about it when you go to the Apple store, what they charge you with like that, but with Android and for everybody, not in an iPhone that is very expensive. And we offer a new one which is called, that is called Clip Pro and another one which is called Clip Total, which is more similar to a traditional POS where, with a very big screen, okay? The last two are similar and I would say is the difference between, somebody at Apple the other day asked me a question, so what's the difference between the two? And I said, well, I'm gonna answer you in, in Apple terms. The Clip Pro is the equivalent of the iPad mini and the Clip Total is equivalent of the iPad Pro. And it was like, oh, she was like, oh, perfect. I understand now. Okay, so these are self devices that are, they include a SIM card that we paid for it, so merchants don't have to, to have a, a data plan on that. And they can do all their transactions in that, both card present transactions with the card and now card not present via links, uh, payment links. And they, have, they can have their catalog and organizing business through that. That's the hardware piece. On the software front, we charge for the hardware, but it's not the business. The business is a transactional-based business. The other two products that we have on the software side are the catalog, where merchants can upload their products and track their inventory, and another one called Recargas, which is nothing else but top-ups. So merchants can sell top-ups to their customers, and they actually make money. This is, you would say this is not very unique. In Mexico, it is unique because all the top-up products out there are based with cash. This is the only place where a customer can pay for a top-up with a, with a card. So that's on the software side. We have a bunch of uh, available payment methods, more than 25 different payment methods available. And we just launched also contactless, which comes in handy. We launched very timely. About, about right before the pandemic, we had a presentation of the event on March 6th, right before this whole thing happened. And the entire uh, hardware, click hardware base is ready for contactless transactions. So that's our current product offering, and it's all SMBs, small and medium businesses throughout Mexico. Until Clip, 85% of those merchants only took cash. So it's a really a truly financial inclusion company. And we became Mexico's largest merchant acquired by number of merchants in October of 2018. Now, today, we're more than double, almost triple the size of what it used to be the largest acquired, which was a bank, one of the largest banks in Mexico. That's incredible. So we, we know that your customers are SMBs. Who are your main partners? So we have several partners. One of them, of course, is the hardware manufacturer, the companies that make the hardware. It all starts there. So that's a big partner. The other one is on the transaction processing side are the brands, Visa, MasterCard, American Express. Some of them are actually investors in the company. On the banking front, we have Banorte as our, Banorte is Mexico's. Depends on how you can, it could be the first or second largest bank, depends on how you can. They are the ones that process all transactions, our accounts are with them, everything is with them. And they have been also a very, very good partner for, I don't know, but we go back a long time. And we also have distribution partners, companies that help us distribute our product, mostly in the retail space, companies like uh, Walmart, Office Depot, Sandboards, things like that. And we also have individuals that help us distribute our product. We consider those our partners also. 
and that's basically kind of aside from investors and all that but this is kind of everything that has to do with the product all the partners that we have and do you have a relationship with the regulator yeah of course we're regulated by the central bank which is, will be the equivalent of the fed in the u.s and by the Commission Nacional Bancaria, which will be the equivalent of the SEC in the United States. Our regulation is light. We have a light regulation because we have a bank behind us. We operate on the, what is called the Payment Service Provider Model, PSP, which is the same model as PayPal, by the way, in the U.S., in many other markets. So it tends to be a light regulation. But yeah, we do provide reports to regulators. We, of course, provide a feedback on, on regulation and on projects. We as an industry, as PSPs, we have a C that our committee that regulates basically all the payment industry in Mexico, which is comprised by the banks, the central bank, the banking commission, etc. And we as PSPs have a seat in that. So yeah, in FinTech, you need to be in close touch with regulators and make sure that you're informing them about what you're doing and why you're doing things and the products you're, you're launching and all that. It is important. Absolutely. Great. So let's go back a little bit. You mentioned that you launched this contactless payments product just in time for this quarantine that we're going through. How has the COVID-19 crisis affected your business and the broader environment in Mexico? I think we made some forecasts on how this thing was going to impact us. The forecast, our forecasts were worse than reality thank god okay because we prepared for a really bad scenario that is bad but it's not as bad as we as we expected that being said it has impacted mexico and the entire world horribly merchant sales have gone down tremendously and many of them are probably never going to recover from this so this will have horrible consequences. I mean, we're already seeing in the, in the United States numbers in unemployment. Mexico reported unemployment uh, numbers a week ago. Uh, it's not weekly like in the States, it's monthly. I, it was a very grim report. Uh, Mexico lost half a million jobs during April. So, I mean, it has hit the businesses, the merchants, pretty much like everywhere in the world. Now, that being said, there's one thing that is very interesting, which is Mexico and Latin America in general have uh, a lot of informal economy. And those merchants, they tend to remain open for longer. They have remained open for longer times. Since it's a sole proprietor, sometimes they tend to still transact less, but they still are transacting. And those have not done as bad as the other ones. What I mean is the clients in volumes that we saw in other regions such as China or the United States have not been as profound in Mexico and Brazil. As, in, as some of us expected. And the reason is that there are certain types of merchants in emerging markets that they will never stop transacting. And there's a very simple reason for that. They will never stop transacting because if they don't transact, they don't sell, they don't have anything to eat. People, a lot of people live by today. Okay, so they have to make a painful decision about closing or keep selling. And if they close, they have no money to feed themselves and their families. So they, they decide to remain open and take a risk. It's part of the strategy of markets like Mexico, Brazil, and many other around the world. But I think this is going to change dramatically many, many things. I tend to think that it's going to be, in the long term, is going to be for the better. As we see, for example, in the United States, how this epidemic has evidenced the clear ineptitude of the current president. The administration has very capable, but the president of the United States, 
And that will happen also, I think, in many other countries around the world. And I think the, I hope that the discussion of climate change actually goes up in the agenda after seeing what a global thing can, can do to everybody's lives. But unfortunately, in the short term, uh, a lot of people are going to suffer. And many people in markets like Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, places like that, people that were middle class, they're going to go into and descend into the poverty line. And people that were in the poverty line are actually going to start hunger. They're going to be hungry for, literally, they're going to be hungry for, because they don't have resources, they don't have money, they don't have access to, to food. And that is very, very unfortunate because it's going if as a society and governments do not act properly, we're going to see inequality increase dramatically in the next couple of years. And that's, that's really bad. Yeah, that's an unfortunate and unprecedented situation. How has it affected the future strategy specifically for CLIP? So I think for us, the strategy remains fairly the same. Uh, that what we had, it, it hasn't changed. It just changed the order of some things. For example, this product on Cardinal Pressing, remote payments. We, we had a schedule for the end of the year. We just move it up in the priority. Well, we already launched it. Uh, for us, the strategy remains basically the same, which is making sure that we provide every single payment method available. And we have a platform that we're rolling out to merchants so they can run the entire business on us. I think... It will accelerate uh, digitalization of payments to some extent, not to the extent that we would like to, but to some extent. Uh, but this, this strategy remains pretty much the same. We, one thing that is very important, we never went into the crazy spending mode that many startups did by raising you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and then going out. We have been more, way, way more conservative. So aside from a few adjustments here and there, for us, this strategy remains pretty much the same, and it's a very long-term play. So I, I wish I could tell you that things have changed, you know, it's more sexy. But aside from some priorities, like making sure things merchants can go digital and things like that, things remain pretty much the same. Got it. There's also this fear from Latin American entrepreneurs that VC investment levels are going to drop significantly they, they have already outlook? dropped they yeah. have already yeah. dropped they have already dropped and they're not gonna they're gonna drop to the floor and they're not gonna recover for a very long time the reason is very simple neil think about it you're a vc okay in the states one of the reasons you went out of the states is because and into latin america and into mexico is because you have prices in the states of startups have gone up dramatically. It's really hard to make money to have decent returns because the market is completely inflated and the prices have not come to a reasonable level. So why would you as a fund with limited resources, and VCs also have limited resources, go and spend time, money on buying stakes in companies in markets that you don't know that well with more uncertain outcomes with weaker regulatory frameworks and with higher risk exposure. It doesn't make sense. You go back to what you know. You go back to San Francisco startups, East Coast startups, New York. You know the usual self, the usual things. So capital is going to dry up dramatically for startups in, in the region. I think series seed uh, would be fine because they're relatively low amounts and there are many funds that can cover that. 
in the region. Series A might be okay also because you have funds, local funds that can cover that. There are no funds in the region that can take you from B rounds and onwards and in fintech specifically in order to create a big business it's likely that you need to raise a lot of money because you need to get to a very big scale and that is going to be a real problem because there's not going to be that many funds available to scale you to where you need to scale in order to become a viable company unless you already have investment from a big fund that has more money to invest then it's a different situation but for companies that are being right now thinking about raising rounds A, more specifically B and C in the medium term is going to be extremely complicated. The volume of deals is just going to plummet. Very interesting. Well, Adolfo, this has been fascinating. Before we go, we have a a last question that we'd like to ask all of our guests, and Mm -hmm. it's about your hobbies, about what do you like doing outside of your time at Clip? Oh, that's cool. So let me, so I, I don't have, and this is something that I've been thinking for a while. I don't have a hobby, like, you know, like some people paint. And I think this has happened to many other startup founders that time the company consumes, it's so, so big. It's hard to have a hobby. So I don't have a dedicated hobby. Uh, like I said, like painting or something like that. However, I do like uh, uh, to do a few things. The, the, the first one is I love running. I really like running. Running makes my life better and running makes me sane. So that, that's one. Two is I read. I read a lot, especially history books. I'm reading a fantastic book right now called Active Measures, which is the story of intelligence and counterintelligence operations since the World War II. And it goes all the way to the Russian operation of the U.S. election in 2016. I mean, and it's chronological. It's it's fantastic book. So I I write. I like to read a lot. I read a lot. I spend a lot of time also with my kids. My kids. uh, I have three kids. uh, So that that takes, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of time. And my guilty pleasure is when I go to Salt Lake to our office that we have there. I always take time for skiing. It's the thing I like the most in the world. Is that, and I I always take. When I go uh, one day off and I disappear from the face of the earth. Amazing. That's a great way to, to finish off our episode. And Adolfo, thank you so much for educating us on the fintech scene in Mexico and LATAM. And you know, you're always welcome to visit us on campus. Thank you, Miguel. Uh, stay safe. And I hope you guys can go back to physical uh, classes in the fall. All right. Good luck. Absolutely. Thank you for having Gracias. me. Gracias. Gracias. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.